0: And a warm welcome to Afternoons With Me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully uh, glad that we're together this time. Thank you for tuning in, whether you tuned in uh, on purpose or by accident. Either way, I'll take it. Sometimes you're just, uh, you know, hitting through the dials and looking for something, and and you hear a person that's not yelling or screaming. That'd be me. So we're going to have a great hour coming up with Ken Samples. He's a philosopher and a theologian. It's like he's so smart he can do both, which I'm very impressed with. And he's at Reasons.org, and we have some great resources over there at Reasons.org. That's where we get uh, Dr. Hugh Ross and Ken Samples and Dr. Jeff Zwernick. A lot of good brain power over there. So if you go to Reasons.org, you can learn more about uh, Ken. But I'm going to bring him on. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Be back in a minute. Whether it's work stress, conflict in relationships, exhaustion, or even money, there are so many things that, like weeds and crabgrass, try to overcome the gardens in your life. Well, as you listen to Faith Radio, we hope the teaching and conversations you hear are like fertilizer and rain for your soul, helping you grow in your faith and love for the Lord, helping you thrive in your family life, workplace, and community. There will always be weeds, but there is always encouragement. Connecting faith to life, Faith Radio.
1: Listeners often tell us their radios are set to the Faith Radio FM signal in their city, and they rarely, if ever, change it. There is now a Faith Radio FM signal in all of the nine cities where we broadcast throughout the Upper Midwest and Hartford, Connecticut. Find the Faith Radio signal for your city at MyFaithRadio.com. Under the About tab, click on How to Listen, and you'll see our list of frequencies. Keep hope and encouragement locked in to Faith Radio on FM.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm always glad when I get a chance to speak to Ken Samples. You go to Reasons.org to learn more about him and the, the brilliant think tank he is a part of. He's both a theologian and a philosopher, and uh, so any questions we have for him, uh, we can get him ready, and I will ask on your behalf. Ken, welcome
1: back to the show. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a joy to be with you and your callers, so I, thanks for having me again. I appreciate that. Well, why don't we just jump in?
0: Let's just start in the book of Revelation. Why not? Huh? (laughs) So in Revelations, in the 13th chapter, it talks about that the people whose names had not been written in the Lamb's book of life uh, from the beginning, from the beginning of the creation, before the creation of the world. It sounds like the names were written in the book prior to the creation. Do I have that right or
1: is that wrong? Well, I, I would say yes. Um, I think that uh, when you look at uh, both what is written in the book of Revelation, what is written in the book of Romans, Ephesians, even some of Jesus' comments in John and other places, um, there are names that God has uh, chosen, and uh, these are people that he uh, plans to redeem even before the creation of the world. And of course, that, that gets into some big, deep issues like election, predestination, and things of that nature. But yeah, I think that the, uh, what's written there in Revelation 13 is consistent with that idea.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: when you realize
0: that these names were there prior to the beginning of the creation of the world, it is, uh, it's it's a difficult concept to put your arms around, but much of what God says is sometimes difficult for us little humans to put our arms around.
1: It is. uh, I think that uh, the sovereignty of God, that God is not only the creator, but he is the ruler, the king, that uh, God reigns and his will will be done. These are, of course, glorious things, but they're they're also challenging things, and different schools of theology relate differently to the idea of uh, election, predestination, the freedom of the will. But the Bible does indeed talk about these types of uh, issues, and I personally think they can be quite encouraging, especially when you're going through difficult times, knowing that God is on your side, that God has chosen you, That he loves you Uh, so this can be both uh, intellectually challenging but it can be spiritually encouraging ken do you see how uh, there might be some people that would feel a
0: little bit defeated to think well what wait a minute what what about evangelism what about missions what 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 am i supposed to be doing am i am i obedient to god's call on my life to to love my neighbor of course and to share the hope that i have with the idea that it's really up to god and this other person as to what's going to happen
1: Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think the way of thinking about it is that, um, you know, God God has plans for people to be redeemed, and uh, that goes through the means to his ends. The, the way that God communicates uh, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and that salvation is a gift from God, that comes through evangelism and through missions. that uh, It's buttressed and supported by apologetics. So simply because God has the end goal doesn't mean that people don't participate in that process. There are means to God's ends.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It uh, is—I didn't mean to start our our time together with uh, such uh, a—I don't know, I guess that's a pretty deep thought. Um, But it's one that I've been thinking about for a while, just when I realized that uh how powerful it is that god had our names written in the book before the creation and that he calls us and then i was starting to think about um just the whole uh difference between uh calvinism and arminianism and you know i don't know if i want my head to explode today but do you want to just let our listeners know again those two perspectives
1: yeah um i mean if you think uh if you think for example, of uh, the biblical statements about election and predestination. So some of the key areas here in particularly the New Testament would be uh, Romans chapter 8 and Mm 9, Ephesians chapter 1, John 6, for example. These are all passages of Scripture that talk about the idea that that God chooses people, that uh, God elects people to salvation. And, of course, there isn't just one uh, theological explanation of this. There there have been many Christian thinkers, some of the great Christian thinkers in history, people like St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, John Calvin, Luther, etc. Some of those theologians have had the view that God elects people in eternity um, and that he calls... Uh, there are other views uh, reflected more in the Armenian Wesleyan view would be that uh, yeah God God chooses but he chooses in Christ and if you are uh, a believer in Christ then you are part of that kind of redempted community. So in the in the reformed or Calvinistic view there's more of the individual election uh, in the Wesleyan Armenian, it's more that Christ is the elect one, and if you accept Christ, then you are part of that elect community. So this tends to cause some tension and, and some debate. Uh, Bill, I'm of the view that Christian denominations uh, and, and the branches of Christendom, of course I mean the conservative branches of Christendom, I think they have more in common than the areas in which they differ, I think Arminian or Wesleyan Christians, Reformed or Calvinistic Christians, have deep common ground, our belief in the Trinity, our belief that Jesus is both God and man, our belief that Christ's death on the cross is the means of forgiving us, his bodily resurrection. And even though I'm more on the Reformed view, I I think that it's important for Christians to to emphasize truth, unity, and charity, and it concerns me at times that we kind of get divided into particular camps. and And uh, what I think is missing is the deep common uh, ground that is part of of historic Christianity.
0: Hmm. All right. Let's jump from something like uh, names written in the Book of Life prior to creation to maybe the difference between. Old and New Testament giving. Um, is tithing biblical?
1: Yeah, this is, a, this is, of course, a very important um, idea, important to the church itself, important to the individual Christian. Um, but I think it, it, it brings us to a theological issue of how do we relate practices that were in the Old Testament And how are they then accepted or modified when it comes to the the New Testament? Uh, And, of course, in the Old Testament, this is the Hebrew scriptures. This is the Jewish community. There were certain practices and ideas. Uh, The early Christians were virtually all Jews. Slowly and gradually, Christianity became a world faith. Gentiles became uh, a, a much greater percentage. And of course, today, Christianity is largely non-Jewish, but not exclusively. There there are uh, Jews for Jesus, uh, Messianic Jews. I would say that uh, tithing is a very critical idea. In fact, I, I think if we we're to read the Apostle Paul, it's not just that we are to think about giving 10% of our income to support uh, the Christian church and the Christian message, but Paul seems to indicate in the New Testament that everything that we have belongs to God and that we should be generous, we should be looking uh, for ways to give what we have to, to the message of the gospel. And so uh, 10% is a great uh, place to begin but I think we should think in more broader terms. What kind of talents and abilities do I have, even other than my financial ability, uh, to offer and to give to to the church? So that would be kind of my take on, mm-hmm. uh, I think.
0: Ken, what do you think uh, the church would look like today if all believers uh, really gave 10%? Well, I, I
1: think it's a— I I think it's a great point to give consideration to. I mean, what would the world be like if the Christian church really got its act together? (laughs) Great question. What, what would it be like if the church was fully funded financially? I mean, um, I don't like to, to speak solely in terms of finances when it comes to the Christian faith, because again, I think our faith appeals to all areas of our life. Maybe some people listening right now can't give all that much, but they may be able to, to give of their, their time, they may be able to, to give of the skills and abilities, but I, I think you ask a great question. And what if the church was fully funded? What if the church really uh, had people in the pews, uh, in the pulpit where they were totally committed um, and there are lots of challenges that we face and the church needs all the help that we can we can give, not just financially, but in terms of prayer and, and support. So uh, maybe if you don't have a lot of money to give, uh, think of other ways in which you can really give to the cause of God. Mm-hmm. Ken Samples is my guest. He's a uh, theologian, he's an author,
0: he's a philosopher, and he's probably good at miniature golf. Well, what do I know? <laughs> we'll take a little break. We'll be back with Ken in just a minute. to the show i have ken samples on our studio line and if uh you have heard ken before you know that he's a deep think thinker and a man that uh goes right to the bible and god's word and parses out uh, all the questions that we throw at him uh with uh, quite a deft touch ken uh question from a listener uh, would you describe a seeker church how would you describe a seeker church
1: Yeah, uh, I I think this idea of kind of seeker-sensitive has been um, uh, a model for churches for some time now. Uh, I think maybe the last uh, 25, 30 years or more, there have been people who have been thinking that maybe the church needs to think in, in terms of being more inviting to people who haven't yet arrived in terms of their commitment to Christianity. And so maybe there needs to be services and maybe the church needs to be cognizant of the idea that there are gonna be people walking in who are interested, but they're not yet fully committed. Uh, They're seekers. Uh, I think that, uh, I think there are are benefits and disbenefits, uh, Bill, in my mind to that model. Uh, I think the, the the positive, of course, is that we have lots of people who are secular or have differing religious perspectives, and I think it's great when the church is very open to evangelism, apologetics, missions. I think it's great when the church is inviting uh, of of people who are uh, who are skeptical but but nonetheless seeking. I think possibly a downside of this is that the church, of course, also has uh, deep responsibilities to the people who are committed. Uh, The church needs to be a school. It needs to be a place where people can grow in their understanding of the teaching of Scripture. Uh, Our services also need to be places where people worship God in, in the fullness. And so sometimes there is a tension in wanting to be open and receptive and maybe maybe uh, uh, meeting uh, seeker people where they are with the, the deeper challenge of uh, that Christians have a lot that should be going on in their, their, their services in terms of helping Christians to grow into deep, mature Christians. Mm-hmm. So see positives and negatives.
0: Yeah, so Ken, how would you go about, I know this is kind of a weird question, but measuring the success of a church? I mean, there's going to be some people that are going to be seeker-sensitive and go, wow, this church is doing great. Look at all the bodies we've added in the last month. But yeah. to me, a, a church is going to be designated for the flock, the followers, the devoted followers of Christ to come gather, have fellowship, and praise God.
1: Yeah, I, I, I appreciate your question very much. And, and again, I have a real heart toward evangelism and, and apologetics. I've spent my adult life really writing books and giving presentations to try to show that Christianity is reasonable, that it is true, that skeptical people, people in other religions should take the Christian faith very seriously. So I love it when, when a church has a strong sense of evangelism, commitment to missions, but there is the, the whole other side. And, and I think that is a very critical part of evaluating the success of a church are people uh, being taught scripture? Are they being taught historic Christian doctrine? Are people growing in their their love for God and their love for each other? I mean, the church is many things. Um, sometimes it's a hospital. Uh, you know, s- sometimes it's a, a place where people come for community but it but it also should be a, a school where people are are learning about their faith learning about Christian values how they can become more committed disciples so i think all of those elements i would i would wish churches would have classes where seeker people skeptical people can come and ask their questions but i don't think the church should ever back off from solid bible teaching and uh you know the critical service of worshiping the triune God.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Here's another uh, question from an astute listener. Uh, the difference. What is the difference, Ken, between dispensational and covenant theology?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm all ears. So when we think about covenant and dispensationalism, largely we are we are thinking of the question of how are we to understand how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament? You know, in in the Old Testament, there were certain covenants that God had with his people, that Yahweh had with the Jewish community. Well, how is the Old Testament then impacted with the coming of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection? And so how are we to understand how the Bible is to be interpreted in terms of the Old and New Testament. Uh, the dispensational school has emphasized these kind of dispensations. There are certain eras in in uh, religious or Christian history, whereas the covenant ha- has emphasized more, again, of these Old Testament covenants in relationship with God. What I would say, Bill, is that over the last 50 years, uh, theologians that are more in the covenant tradition have been talking with theologians who are in the dispensational tradition. Uh, for example, um, at Biola University, Talbot, that, that was kind of a dispensational school. Dallas Theological Seminary, another dispensational school. Well, those schools have been talking to the more covenant schools, like Westminster Seminary. And what's what's been interesting is, I think that there has been kind of a rapprochement. I think the dispensationalists and the covenant theologians have developed what has become kind of a progressive, uh, and I don't mean that negatively, I mean that positively. I think dispensationalism and covenant theology have had a dialogue, and they've had some influence on each other, and I think that's a good thing.
0: hmm I appreciate that thoughtful answer, Ken. Now, an- another question has uh, popped up about the uh, Galatians chapter 1, and Paul is talking about even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. That seems pretty intense if an angel comes from heaven. uh, So that must say that there's a lot of people out there preaching messages that if they're not in line with this gospel that Paul brought, they're in trouble.
1: Yeah, the, the book of Galatians, I think, is a critical New Testament book. I would relate it to the book of Romans in terms of importance about salvation. And it would appear that early on in Christian history with the Apostle Paul, uh, there were people who were saying, yeah, you can be saved by the Messiah, by Jesus, as through his life, death, and resurrection, but then you need to keep the law. Uh, and so Paul here is critiquing this idea that maybe Christians have now been put back under the law. You know, the, the gospel is is an interesting truth. It is, in one sense, the most powerful message in the history of the world. On the other hand, it can be contaminated. It can be uh, negated. And I think the central message of Christianity, as I read through the New Testament, is that we are saved by grace, that salvation is a gift. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we earn. It is something that God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. It's given to us through the Holy Spirit. We receive it by grace, through faith, in Christ. We have to be very careful and realize that the good works we do, and good works are very important. Any person who has saving faith will desire to do good works because that's the, that's the fruit. But works are the fruit of salvation. They're not the root of salvation. And I think it, again, underscores, Bill, how important it is for the average everyday Christian to, to be in their own right, that a, a Christian, he or she, should be kind of a mini theologian, that we should be students of Scripture, that we should recognize that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, though works are the fruit. And so Paul there gives us a heavy message that even if an angel were to come and preach a false gospel, uh, false gospels cannot save. They damn people's souls. Mm, Wow. Ken
0: Samples is my guest. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, lots more with Ken. If you have a question you'd like me to fire at him, let us know what that is. You can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be back in just a minute. I have as my guest, Ken Samples. He is a regular contributor to the show, and it makes me so happy every time he comes on. He's a theologian and a philosopher. You can uh, learn more about him at Reasons.org. All right, Ken, here's a question that popped up. Um, Doesn't it mean that when I become saved, I receive the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation? Does that also mean that I am then filled with the Spirit? Is there a difference?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that question. I I, I think uh, sometimes we don't talk enough about the third person of the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is a divine person like the Father and the Son. The Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is not merely a power or a force. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. Um, and we see the actions of the Holy Spirit in, in the New Testament. And of course, in the book of Acts, uh, we see where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church at Pentecost. Um, I think Scripture is very clear that when people come to believe in Jesus Christ, they uh, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He is very much takes up home with within us. There are Christian traditions, and again we get into theological schools, we get into denominational understandings. Uh, Some people would assert, and I I would be one of them, that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we we embrace Christ for salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit uh, is is given to us in fullness. There are some traditions, however, who say that a fullness of the Spirit is kind of a second development or a, a second work. But again, part of this has to do with whether you're a Pentecostal, whether you're a Charismatic, whether you're more kind of mainline evangelical. But my view is that uh, God gives us His Spirit. Uh, of course, whether we're allowing His Spirit to guide us, direct us, um, you know that that can be impacted by our sinfulness, our need for repentance— but I tend to think we have all of the spirit that uh, that God gives us. But there are Christian groups that would take alternative positions.
0: Mm-hmm. Another very thoughtful answer, Ken. So here's a question that's come in: Do Christians need to obey Old Testament law?
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a thoughtful question. Um, I, I would say that. When we think about the Old Testament, there there are certain cultural practices in the Old Testament, you know, circumcision, uh, eating or not eating certain foods and things of that nature. So there are certain cultural practices that I I think have have been fulfilled in the in the coming of Christ. Uh, yet there are broad moral principles like the Ten Commandments, uh, being faithful to your spouse. Um, uh, you know, not lying, not stealing, uh, there are moral truths that are emphasized both in the old and New Testament, and we clearly have uh, an obligation to to fulfill those laws with with god 's grace, uh, sometimes with his forgiveness. but there are differences between cultural practices and then kind of objective moral principles. I think it 's the objective moral principles. That carry over into the New Testament.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I
1: appreciate that too,
0: Ken. Um, I always have to take a while to kind of chew on the answer a little bit. So if I don't return fire so quickly, it's just I'm still thinking. Sure. All right. Um, when trials and suffering uh, occur, and they're going to, um, what, uh, what are we supposed to be looking for that's going to help grow our faith?
1: Yeah. Again, uh, appreciate your your questions. Appreciate your callers. Uh, you know, everybody goes through very difficult times. Uh, if you live long enough in this world, you're going to you're going to face suffering. You you may have health problems. You may have trouble with your family, with your children. You live long enough, you'll you'll die. Um, the Book of Romans talks about facing trials and difficulties. Uh, God. Who is in control of all things and who loves us and who cares for us. He allows us to go through difficult and challenging experiences because those are things that uniquely can develop our character. I like to say that, that suffering is a severe mercy, and what I mean by that is suffering is severe. It hurts. It's difficult. I don't like it. I don't like seeing other people experience it, but sometimes the only thing we can the only way we can learn certain things or to grow in character is actually to undergo suffering. So I think it's critical for us to to not think that God doesn't love us when we suffer, but to realize that God works all things together for good for those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes, and that Jesus suffered. Jesus underwent great suffering. We belong to him, we will undergo suffering, but God has a plan, he has a purpose, and he never stops loving us.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Ken, here's another money question. Uh, should Christians have debt? And are there different kinds of debt, different types of debt?
1: Well, I, I think the the way of kind of thinking through that is, uh, you know, I, I think when you are in debt, when uh, you have financial struggles, it, it tends to, to cause problems. It tends to cause challenges. I know many people undergo marriage problems, uh, and often the, one of the big sources of marriage problems is is being overwhelmed by debt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is prudent. Uh, I think it's sound Christian wisdom to be able uh, to live in such a way that you're not overwhelmed by finances, that you're able to utilize your finances in the most efficient way, use them for the kingdom of God, Use them to support your family. So I would respond by saying that I I think uh, handling your finances in a in a wise prudent way is simply consistent with a a, a biblical Christian idea of prudence. Again,
0: very nice answer. So let's talk about uh, this question that's just come in. It's about accountability, and the question is. Uh, are there any areas that uh, are like off limits within an accountability relationship?
1: Um, could you give me uh, how how do you think that question? Can you can you kind of guide me in that? Is yeah, there...
0: I, I think the I think the question is about accountability when when you are trying to be accountable to someone. Are there boundaries and rules that should be set up? And if you are in an accountability relationship. Do you ever get to say something like, I'm going to be accountable to you, just don't ask me about this area? And is that acceptable?
1: Well, I, you know, I think that that sometimes works in the context of our own church accountability. I mean, um, members of a church have a certain accountability to the elders, uh, to the leadership of the church. Uh, we have accountability relationships to one another. Um and yet there 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 are boundaries I mean, even when it comes to people that we have relationships with us we because God has been so gracious in forgiving us, we have an obligation to forgive, but part of that context would be that people actually repent and don't abuse us or use us in in an unbiblical way. I think we have important accountability relationships, but they should never. Uh, sacrifice our commitment to God or our integrity, and people should never ask us to be accountable in a way that we would be abused uh, or that they would run contrary to Scripture. I'm, that's kind of general. I don't know if I'm hitting enough specifically, but that would be my take.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's probably uh, close enough, and without any further information about the question, it's hard to say what it would involve, but there's always talk about people needing to be accountable and we live in communities so you know maybe what do you understand community to be and then how much how much in that community is accountability and how accountable do, should we be you know i yeah. guess that was maybe the bigger way to look at the question
1: yeah 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 well i th- again i think uh Christ- the christian faith the christian life involves accountability to our family relationships, uh, to our church, even to our work, uh, our employers, etc., but it should always be um, uh, honoring to God, it should always be mutually beneficial, uh, and we should never set up accountability relationships that could be hurtful or harmful, would be my view.
0: hmm Here's a question, Ken. Uh, what happens when you, your love has grown cold for your spouse? And you don't want to stay in the marriage
1: well that's uh that's a challenging question i i would say that um you know when you stand up in public and make a vow to your spouse that you'll love them honor them cherish whatever phraseology is used um uh vows are different than your feelings Uh, i mean there may be times where you feel very close to your spouse there may be times where you feel you know, a deep bond of love, but there may be times where the relationship has become distant. But again, there's a difference between how you feel and the value you've taken. Uh, you know, I've been married to my wife for 38 years. Um, probably like every marriage, there are times where there's ups and downs and we face challenges and difficulties. I'm sure there are times where my wife has felt more loved or less loved by me. Uh, But, you know, I think that committing yourself uh, is something that has to extend beyond. The integrity has to go beyond how you feel. And there are ways of trying to uh, revive the marriage, maybe some counseling. Uh, Maybe there are ways in which some of that distance can be brought back. Maybe some of the warmth and the love and caring can be had. I would say seek out uh, counseling, seek out reconciliation before you ever consider uh, ending uh, a marriage.
0: Mm -hmm. Here's a question. What is uh, the most important goal every person should have? That's kind of a philosophical...
1: Yeah, I I like that. I I like like that one too. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, uh, here I'm going to appeal to a... uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, it, it says that the goal of our life is is to is to love God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, another statement uh, in my tradition is that, you know, our the goal of our life should be to, to love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I I think that the goal of our lives is to to love the Lord, to, to receive His forgiveness then to use all of his gifts and calling in our life uh, to carry out his his will. Uh, and so Christians have a, a deep worldview commitment to God. But I think uh, as well that uh, knowing God, being knowed, known by him, being forgiven by him, means that we have the great opportunity to be loved, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. And so... Uh, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and endeavor to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Two great commandments Jesus gave us. Mm -hmm. Ken, how can uh,
0: humans be so confident in beliefs that can't be proven?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, You know, there there are a lot of things that uh, we believe that we can't see. I mean, I can't really see Numbers. uh, You know, the idea of nineness is really invisible. Even when I see the number nine written in a book or on a chalkboard, that's just a symbol. Nineness is invisible. Mm -hmm. The the laws of logic, uh, these are not laws that I can see. So there there are many of the most important things can't be observed. Uh, Justice you might see examples of justice, but you can't see justice in and of itself. Um, I think there are good reasons to believe in certain things that we cannot see, but realize that they are deep intuitions. These are deep truths. And uh, so I would say, uh, realize that when you're having a hard time believing something you can't see, that there are many things we believe that we can't see, and we take as critical aspects of our life. Mm. Very, very interesting. Ken Samples is my guest.
0: We're gonna take a little break, and after a short break, we'll be back with lots more with Ken. Welcome back to the show. I have Ken Samples on our studio line. He's a theologian and a philosopher. You can learn more about Ken at org. He's part of that brilliant think tank. And Ken, right before we went to break, you mentioned the word justice and that perked my ears up a little bit. I jotted a note to myself to ask Ken, what's the difference between justice and revenge?
1: Wow. Well, uh, I, I would say that the justice is in kind of a practical sense, getting what you deserve. Um, that, of course, could be both uh, positive and negative. If I've committed a crime, uh, getting what I deserve might mean that I need to go to jail or it may mean that I could have to pay a fine. Uh, in another sense, in a positive sense, um, maybe a person, uh, you know, should be treated with respect and and dignity and, and getting what you deserve would be Getting the kind of respect that you deserve uh, and and should be uh, granted to you. Revenge, on the other hand, is uh, you know a a person being in a context where they feel like they need to decide uh, what should happen. You know, I uh, I clearly understand there are times where people are hurt, maybe in a crime, maybe the judicial system does not work it out. Uh, maybe the way it should be, and people feel an impulse to kind of take revenge and go after it, uh, God is a God of justice. And God has put uh, things in this world like uh, laws and like the judicial system and like police. And I think that as much as we at times might feel a tendency to want to pursue revenge, uh it, we don't have the wisdom, the just, the just understanding to be able to do that. I think we should utilize the courts. We should utilize the institutions that God has given. We may regret uh, a decision to bring, to bring revenge. All mm-hmm. All right, Ken, here's another
0: thoughtful question. I think you'll like this one. Uh, the listener says, ask Ken, how important is doctrine and then being competent in regards to doctrine.
1: Yeah, well, that person knows me uh, pretty well. <laughs> All right, maybe you're being stalked. Yeah, well, uh, that's okay. I, um, I think, I think there's no more important thing than what we believe about God, than we believe about the nature of reality, than we believe about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I talk a lot about particular doctrines, like the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in being and three in personhood. I talk about the incarnation, that Jesus has come into the world and he has a divine nature and a human nature. I talk about the atonement, how has Jesus forgiven our sins through his sacrifice on the cross. The resurrection, that Jesus was raised bodily. I think what's critical about doctrine is that these are beliefs that we have these are core beliefs that we have about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of the church, the nature of our own fallenness. Unfortunately, Bill, I think we live at a time where our churches uh, don't work hard enough to teach people essential Christian doctrine, what 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 uh, C.s. Lewis called mere Christianity. And so i I spend a lot of my time in writing my books, giving lectures that try to explain what essential Christian doctrine is, why it is so important that we affirm it, and how it differs from other uh, secular and religious viewpoints. And so um, I guess the summary is we're talking about truth, and truth is so sacred that we should try to get it right in every way we can.
0: Hmm. Well said. Here's a, a question. If you you know, were sort of had that stranger on a plane, um, you're sitting next to someone and you've got an hour to talk and you get into a spiritual conversation and you get the opportunity to share the gospel. What would be your inclination? How would you try to lead them to Christ? What what words would you use? Would you use the Roman road? What would you you do?
1: Well, I I like that uh, because I do think that we get those opportunities and, and sometimes when we're sitting next to a person on a plane that we don't know, uh, sometimes there's kind of a freedom to, you know, sh- to share our, our views. I think I would try to f- discover as best I could where the person is coming from. Uh, is this a person who is highly skeptical? If they are, what are the things that are kind of standing in the way? Is this a person that has Christian roots, maybe, maybe fallen away from them? So what is the orientation of the person? Uh, and what kinds of concerns and qu- questions uh, might they have, I think when it comes to specifically talking, I think I would talk a- about the person of Jesus Christ. I think I would talk about who he was what he what he what he claimed to do, uh what his role was in coming into the world as the Messiah, uh laying down his life to cover people's sins, the need uh, to repent and embrace and accept him. That is, rather than kind of giving, you know, the four spiritual laws or any particular uh, frame, I think I would want to introduce that person to Jesus and talk about how Christ has come into my life and and changed it. So I try to find out where they're coming from and then maybe try to take obstacles out of the way and then then talk about who Jesus is and what he did.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I like that, too. All right, Ken, here's a question. Bill, love your guest. Who doesn't? I love him, too. Uh, would you have Ken explain nihilism? Did I say that right?
1: Yeah. Uh, nihilism or nihilism, um, you know, it's it's essentially uh, the idea that um, certain worldview ideas or certain perspectives, there is no ultimate meaning and, and purpose and significance. I mean, let's suppose, for example, that there's no God, and we're the product of blind mechanistic natural processes. There, there are Christians who think that atheism, secularism is nihilistic. That is, there's no ultimate meaning or purpose uh, behind it. I certainly think a fundamental weakness of the atheist naturalist worldview is that it is very difficult for them to account for things like meaning and purpose, morality, objective truth. So nihilism is the idea that there's no ultimate meaning or purpose or significance in this world or for human beings. Hmm. I like that. All
0: right. Here's a question, Ken. How would you best explain evil?
1: Wow. These are uh, these are great. Um, yeah. Well, Christians have approached the question of evil in, in differing ways. I'll, I'll introduce you very briefly to Saint Augustine's perspective. You know, some people would say, "Why did God create evil?" Uh, Saint Augustine said that that evil is not a thing; it's an absence. Uh, mm. Evil is kind of like uh, it's kind of like a cavity. It's the absence of moral goodness. So God didn't create evil. Evil is kind of like a parasite. Uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a, part of the challenge that atheists again have is, uh, if you say there's evil in the world, then then you have to have a standard of goodness because evil is the result of that. I would say that that evil is rebellion. Evil is the absence of the moral goodness that God is the source from, and so often it is a clash with the moral virtues of God and. Uh, I think for there to be evil in the world, and I think there really is, there has to be a, a standard of goodness, and the best way of explaining that standard of goodness is God.
0: -hmm. I like that. All right, Ken here's uh, this, might, <clears throat> this might be a love and grace kind of question, uh, but the listener wants to know uh, how much effort should she put into not offending others. Obviously, I think what she wants to do is be truthful, tell the truth stand up for biblical uh, doctrine, but not want to offend somebody? Tricky question.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we live at a time where uh, people are highly sensitive about various issues. People often feel that, you know, they're kind of trampled on by others. Uh, I think you've correctly said it, that there are times where we have to stand up for the truth. Uh, There are times where affirming truth is going to clash with what other people believe yet I don't think we have to go out of our way to be offensive to people I, I hope that the life I live and the way I present the Christian faith would draw people uh, to, to critical truth questions um, I'm you know I think there are times where uh, we can be sensitive uh, to secondary issues and uh So if it doesn't violate our truth issues, I think we should try to be gracious, winsome people in every way that we can, but never to violate our commitment to the truth.
0: Yeah, boy, amen to that, Ken. Ken, I love when you come on the show. Thank you so, so much for uh, being willing to to come on regularly. I just uh, love our time together.
1: Well, Bill, you're very gracious. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm a big fan. Uh, Ken Samples has been my guest. If you want to learn more about Ken and his brilliant think tank over at reasons.org that's the web address reasons.org okay that should give you some things to think about and to chew on i know i'm going to do it i'm going to go back and listen to that from start to finish because ken samples always makes me think i hope you enjoyed the whole show thanks for being with me today and as you lay your head on the pillow just be just know that god's working out his great plan in your life god bless i'll see you tomorrow